Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Personalization Outbreak Podcast, your go-to podcast for meaningful conversations with influential leaders from different sectors every week. Now, our guest this week comes from the education sector. Dan Durbin is the head of school for Buford Academy in Buford, South Carolina, and is a 30-year veteran of education. Dan is a national award-winning educator, administrator, and consultant, including Indiana State Teacher of the Year. Now, as you'll experience, Dan is an educator ahead of the game who's not afraid to challenge the overly standardized educational system to address the real issues towards creating personalized educational pathways. Now, during this interview, we'll talk about the importance of redefining and personalizing educational systems for students to experience equality, diversity, and inclusion, and why educators must evolve away from outdated standards that suppress the student's individuality. Now, in fact, this theme was widely discussed at my organization's recent 2021 Leadership in the Age of Personalization Summit, where we asked students, patients, and employees to explore the ways we can unleash individuality by interrupting our assumptions about who belongs where, doing what, and how. In fact, if you'd like to watch the 2021 Summit on demand, you can do that free by registering now at 2021summit.ageofpersonalization.com. So before we get started, make sure to hit the like button below, share it with your colleagues, and subscribe to our YouTube channel at Glenn Yopi so that you can be in touch with our most recent content about leadership in the age of personalization. Let's get started. You are listening to Personalization Outbreak, a podcast about the collapse of traditional corporate standards in today's more personalized world. I'm Glenn Yopis. I'm a leadership strategist, author, contributor to Forbes, and founder of the Leadership in the Age of Personalization movement. On this show, I'm interviewing executives across multiple sectors to find out how the balance between standardization and personalization can exist. Dan, welcome to the show. Great to have you. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. Listen, I, look, you and I have had several offline uh, discussions, and uh, the more that we talk, the more I recognize just how ahead of the game you've always been, Dan. And it's interesting how we're starting to find this out about uh, some of those leaders out there that perhaps were, were viewed as maybe the ones disrupting the status quo, but was actually trying to provide a helping hand in helping us get out in front of the change. So on that note, Dan, maybe let's get to know you as an individual for just a bit. I think it's important for our audience because I know some of the things that we're going to be talking about are very uh, transformational, but yet uh, rooted in common sense. And we'll discuss that in a minute too. So Dan, when when are you, or when do you find yourself uh, being your most authentic self? I've always felt like that we as both leaders and human beings, our goal is to help others, to be that instigator, to let people get to that next level of both their objective thought as well as their creativity. So for me, my, my authentic self is seeing others succeed. We, we are here not only to 
dream up new things and make new plans, but we're also here to help people actually follow those paths and to take their own creative genius and make that path better. So for me, it's all about people that I'm surrounded by. I love having the opportunity uh, to mentor, to help young educators or young businessmen see that, yes, it could go that way, but have you ever thought about it? And give them the opportunity to do those things. You know, Dale, when did you um, get a sense about yourself that you were always, I don't know, in search of alternative constructs? When did you learn that about yourself? Because that's what I've experienced. When I was the student council president at my high school and everyone was being rude and I stood up and yelled, stop being so damn rude. (laughs) They told me in the office that day that that wasn't the kind of leadership they were looking for. Really, I started to notice that as I had gone through the military, I had seen great leaders. I saw great leaders when I was in school, went to college, worked jobs. And it began to dawn on me in my 20s that everything doesn't have to look the same. Hmm. There can be other ways of doing things. The value of getting to where we want to go shouldn't always outnumber the importance of how we get there. Hmm. Um, I realized as a young teacher that young people don't always learn the same way. They don't always see things at the same time. And because of that, it helped me to start thinking to myself, is, are there different ways that we can help young people get to that same spot we want them to, but in a way that they understand. In doing so, I, I remembered uh, back in my 30s, I went to a conference and it was Bernice McCarthy, Dr. Bernice McCarthy. And I listened to her speech and I thought, that lady understands me. And she hadn't even met me. And one of the things I took from that was a story she told. And it was very simple. If you want to learn how to sail, S-A-I-L, what are you, how are you going to do that? Hmm. Well, there's a part of you that says, won't it be great when we're out on the water, the mist in our face, the wind in our hair? Another part of us says, give me a book so I can memorize the parts. Yet another part says, keep the book, give me the boat, let me try it out. And then a fourth part of our inner part of our brain says, as soon as you three are done making this thing work, I'll plan a trip around the world. And I think it was there in in my 30s where I finally began to realize it was okay for me to think differently. It was okay for me to express myself differently. Then my challenge was to make sure that those around me, whether it be my students or my staff, they got that same privilege and that same acceptance to do those things. Sounds to me like you were quite wise uh, as you were growing up and uh, were highly curious about, uh, is there, are there better ways? And this leads me to another thought here, Dan, and I know it, it means a lot to you. I mean, why do you think, or when did you, do you think that we lost our appreciation for common sense and why is common sense so foundational uh, 
yet so often ignored? Well, I always laugh before I answer questions like that, because I think we all agree that common sense isn't so common anymore, that we've allowed ourselves to be indoctrinated, either indoctrinated by our politics or indoctrinated by something in our life that says this is the way things are supposed to be. We, we really have this thing about perspective, don't we? Mm-hmm. How we're looking at things, how we see them. Now, here's a quick example of that. Uh, at the university, I would always teach the uh, university students, what is your truth? Mm-hmm. What makes you know things? And I'd get all kinds of answers. But what I would say to them was, all right, there are four kinds of truth. And boy, they got their pencils out and they're writing, not getting ready to give them the gem of all of life's meaning. And I would say, you do realize that the first kind of truth is my truth, capital M-Y. And then I draw a big circle on the board and I have arrows coming from the middle of the circle out. And I would have them, I would give them leading questions and they would have to tell me what that meant. And they would finally get to the point where they say, well, it means my truth means it's from inside of me, hmm. not the what's external. It's what I feel, what I've experienced. So if I have to lie to my parents because I want to go to someone's house they don't agree with, it's OK because they just don't understand hmm. everything based on your internal feelings, what you want. And then there's a truth called the truth, T-H-E. And just by saying the, we're trying to say that there's one. It's the only one. And there are a lot of people who go in that world. And we'd draw a circle. And I'd put two blinders on each side of it to show them that the truth is your idea that you already have it. Mm. You might have grown up with it. Someone might have taught it to you, a coach, a parent. And you're not willing to give that up. It gives you a solid path which to follow. And no matter what anyone says, they can't get it through the blinders that you have on. And then I draw little circles on and I say, there's also a truth, which kind of gives you the sense that there's more than one. Hmm. And I'll write uh, maybe Protestants down and Muslims down and so on. And as long as we stay out of each other's territory, then we kind of leave each other alone. But the minute What you do gives me cognitive dissonance. That forces me to have to challenge you. What I thought. And then I ask them, which one are you a member of? And usually they say all of them. Depending on the situation, I use that kind of truth. Hmm. And then I ask them, let's try a new approach. Instead of circles, let's draw a line. So I draw a line on the board. And I say, from birth to three or four years old, look at all the things you learn, walking, talking, thinking, so on. And then each year you add another layer and I make a shorter line. And then we keep talking about another year and a shorter line. And it finally ends up like a pyramid. And that pyramid, I asked them, what, what, what are you really saying here? Well, that I get wiser every year. That truth changes, that what I thought yesterday can change today because I have new information. So I asked them to give me examples. And one of them said, I still remember him saying, 
I really, really didn't like such and such. Hmm. Yet in the rain with a flat tire, he stopped, changed my tire, made sure that I got safely to the next spot. And I remember going home and telling my parents, he's not such a bad guy after all. Hmm. So what we have in that pyramid is evolving truth. Hmm. New information, but imagine what you have to do in order to evolve your truth. You have to be open to new information. You have to be open to be objective in placing that information. So after they started to understand that, I would take the triangle and turn it upside down. I tell them, when you're first born, how much wisdom do you have? Not much. You learn a lot but you don't understand a lot. And each day you get less, takes less information to give you more wisdom, more understanding. So over here, you've got a pyramid. That's the knowledge you're gathering. And over here, you have an upside down pyramid. That's wisdom. And if you look at the top of both, you have got very little information you need to gather a lot of wisdom. So when you look at that, and you start talking about perspective, depending on where you're at in that truth model can change how you look at things, how you handle things. Common sense gets lost because we do not take the time to have a evolving truth. Hmm. We get stuck on things. And by being stuck on those things, we will not consider that there are other ways, other ways of thinking. Try to make sure that uh, when I'm either teaching or speaking at a conference, that folks begin to understand that evolving truth is really what's happening to you and with you, if you let it. You know, Dan, this is, I mean, talk about getting right to it, Dan. Um, so clearly you've just validated that when we're stuck in standardization, we don't evolve. And that the need to unleash one's individuality allows us to accelerate wisdom inside of each of us, but for all of us. And this takes us to foundational wisdom. And you gave, gave such a great synopsis of why we must all be in search of our truth rather than everybody else's truth that ends up stripping us of our identity. So how do we bring back foundational wisdom into education, Dan? Oh. And, and, and so give us a sense of this, because this is not just about higher education or you know, K through 12. This is across the continuum of education. How do we bring it back? I think the first place to start is, do you understand what your uncompromising value system is? Now, let's repeat that. Uncompromising value system. Hmm. We're not talking about a system that moves based on the situations. The situations are dictated by the system in our head. For example, if I say to you, I do not believe in cheating people. If I say that simple illustration, my kids will tell you how many times I've come out of a store and had an extra dollar 
or an extra 50 cents and turned right around, went back in and gave it back. My son once asked me, what does it matter? Well, it really does matter because if I cheat myself and my value system on little things, when it's time to make big decisions, big choices, big compromises, then I will also cheat myself. So understanding what we stand for, what our value system is, is critical. And it's not an easy thing to do for our young people in particular. There are so many things that are pulling them, pulling us in the direction. So we don't really sit and think about what is my value system? What do I cherish? What do I put my time, treasure, and efforts into? And leave it. Example, what is right and what is correct? I once asked that question of my staff, and then they said, well, it's the same thing. Really? I'm going down the highway. I'm going 75 miles per hour. Police officer pulls me over. It's 65, Dr. Durbin. Yes, it is. I was doing the incorrect thing. But my wife's in the back. The head of the baby is showing. I have got to get to the hospital soon. Can we talk about it when we get there? The right thing to do was what he would have done, which is get in his car and guide me all the way to the hospital Mm. because he knew the right thing at that time. We get tied up into this thing about what is correct. And we do not look at what is right, which is where your common sense comes back into the conversation. So I think that when we're looking at this uncompromising value system of ours, We have to know what we stand for. And we don't teach kids to think that way. I had an example once at a university class I was teaching where I made some statements in the class. And I think what it was is I said, I want to know what you think about five things. Hmm. And I want to know what you think. I don't really want to know what your priest thinks, your pastor. I don't want to know what your parents think, your best friend. I want to know what you think. And I got a phone call that night, which surprised me because at university level, you usually don't get a parent to call you. And she said, we've already taught our daughter what to believe. We don't need you confusing. Hmm. Although she says you are a great teacher. And that day I tried to be kind. And my response was, I agree. You have that choice that you can make. There's another class scheduled an hour later. Maybe it will fit her schedule better. She returned to the class. We don't allow our kids the opportunity to go outside the mode in which we as both parents, sometimes it's teachers, sometimes it's employers, to be able to expand their knowledge base, their wisdom base. And in doing so, we hold them back. And when they get into real life things, they don't know what to do with it. They don't know how to go back to what they know is their belief system and use that belief system to make choices about situations and things. You, you know, Dan, this is interesting because, I mean, you've heard me say that, you know, we're, we're transitioning from a knowledge-based to wisdom-based economy, that it's no longer just about what you know, but what you do with what you know. And 
where you're getting at, and again, I'm just sharing something that you shared with me offline, that the more compromise we make, we don't know what we believe in. Remember you shared that with me? And mm-hmm. it, it, it's interesting because if we limit our knowledge, we limit our ability to gain wisdom and know what to do when the moment calls. So why do we continue to compromise when we know that each time we do, we're losing a little bit of ourselves? Well, we, we've become, we used to be the pioneer nation, remember? We used to be the pioneer nation. We pioneered, we went to new places, new things. In the 60s, we went to the moon. We looked at those things and they weren't anything that was supposed to be controversial. Everything in our society now has become a one or the other. Controversial. You either agree with us, you don't agree with us. And isn't that kind of ironic for a country that we look at it and we're supposed to be uh, a republic that practices democracy? And the irony to that is that democracy cannot be practiced unless there is a spirit of cooperation and compromise in order to look at. You can't make things happen in a democracy unless people can sit down, have discussions, express their views, and then come together with a compromise. Look at what our young people have faced for at least the last 40 some years. Mm. It has been a culture of us against them. And if you want to fit in, it's almost, and this is not, it's a little bit cruder example, but it's almost like saying you're now in prison. Which group are you going to be with? Hmm. And that becomes how you make your decisions. We've got to get to the point where our young people, our young leaders, college students, all of them are to the point where they understand that life is not about picking something and making that your life flashlight. Life is about looking at things and measuring them and figuring out how they fit into our value system and then figuring out how that promotes who I think I really am. Mm. I am the guy who wants to see others rise. If my decisions keep one of my students or they keep one of my business associates from rising, That's not helping at all. As a matter of fact, here's an example of how we do things differently. When I observe a teacher, the very first observation, I have them, we have a drink, coffee, something, and we discuss, and I give a a written examination to them. The teacher said, I didn't do this. And I say, but you will the next time, won't you? That's a great idea. I didn't do it. But you will next time, won't you? Nothing about that first experience was to tear that teacher down. Because I know that they're young and they're new. It was to give them advice so that they could take that and say, I can make this happen. And there's never been a time of the hundreds of teachers that I've dealt with that we did not have teachers go back and start putting those positive things into work. Why? Because we did not choose to loop them in and to pressure them and to make them feel as though they were outsiders. 
for not doing it the way we want them to do it. We gave them the advice they needed to understand it, be objective. And then we gave them the support they needed and which to take it and make it their own. How much do we have buy-in if it's someone else's? <laughs> you just think about holding a crying baby. You can only handle it so long if it's not yours. And I can guarantee you from having three children, I know about crying babies. But I'll guarantee you, when it's yours, you find a way in your heart that that crying doesn't bother you. We have to look at human beings the same way. You know, Dan, um, boy, you packed a lot in there. And one of the things that jumped out is it how we have a tendency uh, based upon what you had described to unknowingly, and I'm going to say unknowingly because I don't believe it's the intent, uh, to uh, suppress our young people. They don't know. They don't get it. They didn't live through what we lived through. And I think this ties back to what, what we discussed and what you shared at the beginning, that our, is our thinking evolving? And if we stay stuck in the standards of the past and we fail to evolve, uh, it's, I believe it's almost impossible to uh, know what our uncompromising values are in, in how we can stay true to what we stand for and what we seek to become rather than get sucked into a system that forces people to battle the gulf between assimilation and authenticity. So as we continue this journey of understanding the importance of foundational wisdom in education, tell us a little bit about understanding and the acceptance of location. I know this matters to you. Uh, repeat that again there. I had a little bit of a hiccup on my end. Sure. Uh, understanding and acceptance of location. I know that oh. this is another important uh, building block on yeah. how we bring foundational wisdom back to education. Well, the, the key is for us to begin to understand our emotional and mental location. We go through these things in our lives and all of us face pressure, tension, so on. For me, if I'm angry, it's a show. If I'm quiet, I'm serious. Hmm. And people who work with me know that if I put on a show for you, I'm trying to get you to think. That mental and, and emotional location that we're in, if we can't control that and we allow it to get us off of our track, not in our thinking or our creativity, but the track of controlling who we are so that we don't give up who we are, hmm. then we, we, we really can't get to the point where we can be a leader. I'll guarantee you right now, people cannot follow individuals who don't know themselves hmm. because they're trying to do it by a book. Hmm. They're trying to, they're, uh, I've always thought that maybe my next job, because I'm a project guy and go places in project, that my next job would be to maybe go to a uh, military college and teach leadership, but not just the military leadership. Leader, people who are followers want leaders who know what they believe, 
can express it in their actions. And if you fold because emotionally you don't have that under control and you fold because it's mentally tiring for you, we all get to those points. What is it is your system that you use that helps you overcome those moments? For me, it's to shut up. I will get tense. And if I get tense and something angers me, I've learned through the wisdom of growth that just be quiet. Listen. Take a breath. Don't say anything. And that's part of my goal. Don't say anything that you have to go back later and say, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean that. Hmm. Rarely do people think you mean that. Rarely do they think you didn't mean it. Because in our culture, what do we say? When you're mad. I believe it can do harm. I believe it can make you feel as though you're taking your frustrations out. But the reality is things come out of our mouths as leaders that can stop every bit of progress, not for ourselves, but for the people that follow us, mm-hmm. for the people that we create an atmosphere for which they learn to be leaders. So, yes, that, that emotional where are you at is just as important as being able to say, here's my value system. Mm-hmm. And having some way that you overcome those things. Uh, I think my grandma said count to 10. Usually for me, it's 50. Why, why do you think we live, uh, we're living in a time, uh, and quite candidly, I think we've always been living this way, but it seems to have become more apparent that uh, we live in a time where people are quick to judge. Do you think it's because that individuals feel so suppressed by so many experiences that they've had in their life that they have to bestow that suppression upon others? Well, I I think it's the difference between ignorance and stupidity. (laughs) What is ignorance? It's the not knowing. Stupidity, on the other hand, is you know, but you choose to ignore. (laughs) And most of our value systems have been fed to us so much without any evaluation of those systems that we, it would almost be like, I wasted my life if this isn't true. Hmm. The inability to say that today is just another step toward a more rational understanding of me and the world I live in. That's very hard for us to do. And I think that we, we, that culture we were talking about in our country, us and them, well, what are you really saying if you finally come to the middle and say, you know what, you've got some really valid points. Are you saying that you have evolved? Or in your mind, are you saying, uh, I've wasted my life if I do that. I've wasted conversations if I do that. Hmm. We're not focused on the betterment of others, betterment of ourselves, our communities, the earth we live on. We're all about being right. And when you have to be right all the time, 
you lose so much about what the world and others have to offer you. And I think that frustration has taken its toll. And so when we do with our students, we try to help them understand that confirmation bias is all around you. Make sure that you don't take a situation and make it an absolute. Hmm. You take time to look at all sides of it. Here's an example. If I gave you a cube, equal sides, four inches, and I laid it in front of us right here, and it was at a point, and it had three red sides you could see, two sides and the top. And I ask you, what color is the cube? What would you tell me? You would probably say it's red. Yeah, red. Because that's what you see. And then I pick it up and I throw it up in the air and one side is yellow, one side is green, one side is blue. And then you would say, but that's not fair. I could only see three sides of it. Then I would ask you, what are you going to have to do to get a better view of the cube, of the situation? I'd have to get up, pick it up, look at it, examine it. All right, now we're getting into some talk about your action. <laughs> now, how many sides does the cube have? Well, it's got six. Yeah, but if I open the cube up, it's got six on the inside, too. So now we're talking about your emotional health, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. My point to that is, is that our perspective, our, we don't teach that to young people, how to look at things differently, how to have images that make those concrete. So we're right back to where we're starting. How do we evolve? And how does our truth evolve? So Dan, take us as we begin to wrap this up, uh, the importance of uh, requiring a common language to speak through our differences, because clearly uh, diversity of thought has been a, the central theme, uh, whether they stem from our values, the individuals that we are, the things that we stand for. Why is having a common language so important? Well, I think one of the first things I do, whether I'm working with businesses or working with education, is I help them to understand that you have to create a common vision that is articulated with a common language that's accomplished through common goals and founded on common sense. Hmm. We say things to each other and we're saying the exact same thing but because of the language we're using the symbols we're using we are mad at each other before the conversation is over <laughs> absolutely phenomenal how that happens all around us this common language stuff is really important because once we get once we get our symbols down then we actually know what to be upset about <laughs> when you're mad and you really can't explain why you're mad, that tells you that there's no common language that's really happened there. So for, for me, I want to make sure that the people that work with me in my job, my teachers, my administrators, that they always understand we talk about our vision and we talk about it in the terms that we share with one another. Mm. And our goals, we don't just throw them out there. If you've got a great way to make it happen, we're going to accept your great way of making it happen. But once we accept it, we will review them 
And if there's a better way to add to it, we will. But if not, those are our common goals. So, so and, go ahead, Dan. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, and then we have to look at that whole common sense thing. Yeah. We may have the dream of a laptop, but if it's not working, it's not reaching our audience, then we have to go back and say, let's work on this a little bit. And so, Dan, I think that aligns well with one of the, the key areas of, of how we find balance between the forces of standardization and personalization. And it's that we need to find ways to invigorate a shared mission. And I've often said that uh, organizational missions um, can't be more valued than one's contribution to it. And, uh, you know, you talk about the importance of needing ambassadors uh, to allow them to ex- uh, to allow others to expand themselves. Can you elaborate on that? Because I think this aligns with uh, one of my particular truths around this topic. Well, I, I, I think we, we are all ambassadors. We are ambassadors to help those around us have the freedom to open up to possibilities. If we have any of the gluttony and the seven daily sins, we're not able to do that. We're not able to allow you to express yourself and to open with real listening. I heard you, but I didn't listen to you. Hmm. No, I, I really listened to you. And I love the idea about such and such. We turn so many people off that they are walking like zombies in our institutions, thinking if I could just get to Friday. What a sad statement to make about what takes up the most time of our life in a week, our jobs, our education. It should be just the opposite of that, that I'm so in tune with the vision and, and I'm so bought into it. And I feel as though I am a part of it on a daily basis that I'm, I'm making it better for not only myself, but for the people that are working with me. So, so, Dan, on that note, and I'd like for you to, if you wouldn't mind, close with um, how you, your turnaround stories about increasing uh, diversity uh, in schools. Because, uh, as you can imagine, um, in, in standardization, someone would just look at you and say, well, Dan couldn't have done that. But how have you done it? And I think I already know the answer based upon the way that you're thinking. But why is it that we... Uh, as educational institutions complicate the, the issues of diversity and inclusion when the answers are right in front of us and, and share a story of, of, of how you turned it around. Uh, but this is a very ironic example. I came to Buford, South Carolina as a executive principal, consultant, project manager. I usually take a job in whatever project I'm doing so that I'm on the ground floor. And I was called to be the first white principal at a school that was predominantly African-American. And the superintendent said, we've got some real problems here. And he showed me a stack of newspapers that said they had some real problems there. Within two years, we had all of the kids who quit going to that school and going to the private school down the road back 
So we weren't at 70 percent African-American. We were at 48, 49 and 48, 49 white. We had to ask ourselves, why did people divide themselves? And the answer was through the people that were questioning, not through us. Hmm. And they began to say the kind of things that are normal, which is safety. Those people I don't feel safe around. So the first thing we did is we took care of all safety issues. I spent the first year I was there going to every church and every organization that could possibly want to listen and talk about what our goals for our kids were. Now, here's the irony. After about eight years of getting that school turned around to be a very, very good, strong school where you didn't run from it. The school that had a lot of kids at it because they didn't want to be at the public school called me and said, can you help us get our kids back? (laughs) So I came to that project and said, now ask yourself, what is it that keeps you from having these things? Why, if they run to you, they should run to you, not because they're running away from something, because they're running to something. So we created for this group, they're the leadership academy in South Carolina right now. That this school is the group where you uh, we're hoping to get a big USDA loan soon and start a boarding school as a part of it. So that kids from all over South Carolina can come here like a governor's school and learn about leadership, learn about objective thinking. Now, some of the kids at the other school are saying, when can I get to come over to your school? Our goal is to find what our community needs and train leaders within that community. Dan Durbin will be done when he's done with this project because he likes the project. I'll come back and visit, but I guarantee you this project will survive because the men and women that we've hired that every day we're training, that every day we're allowing them to have input and ownership, they're going to take this project and make it better than even I could on a piece of paper. You you know, Dan, I'm going to wrap this up by uh, addressing the five questions that you answered throughout this entire podcast that every leader should be aware of as they think about themselves, those they lead, and the stakeholders in which they're attempting to best serve. Number one, who do you let in? How do you see those that you let in? Who do you let them be? What do you let them do? And how do you let them do it? See, it's through these five questions. This is how we actually begin to measure inclusion and create the conditions for individuals to be unleashed. Dan, I can't thank you enough for your time today. Uh, you always shine a light on uh, the importance of not only thinking differently, but valuing things such as common sense and wisdom that actually go hand in hand. So Dan, listen, I can't thank you enough. And do you have any final comments before we leave? Nope, I appreciate being asked to be on this. I follow you guys and I think maybe it's a uh, a good thing for our country right now to be thinking a little differently. Thank you so much, Dan. Really enjoyed you. And as we always end the show, when we lead in the age of personalization, 
You will see things that others don't. Do what others won't and keep pushing when prudence says quit. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Personalization Outbreak. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. If you enjoyed the content, visit ageofpersonalization.com to check out our free streaming video series and learn how to get involved in the movement. I'm Glenn Yopis. I wish you a good day. And remember, without strategy, change is merely substitution, not evolution.